Good morning, brothers and sisters, and visitors as well. Open your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Um, you know, I was thinking of the, um, the privilege that it is to come and to stand before um, the assembly and to present the Word of God, to preach a message. And uh, one thing that came to mind is, you know, um, my wife Jessica and I, we have a lot of things that are similar, but we also have a lot of things that are different, as I'm sure with every couple. And uh, one of those things is that I have the unique ability to to sleep under pretty much any circumstances. Like, she's a bit of a light sleeper. I can sleep through almost anything. I actually remember a time when um, we were teenagers and we had a friend come over and sleep, and he tried to sleep in my bedroom there with me on the floor. And uh, he gets up and he's like, man, your your ceiling fan sounds like a marching band. And uh, I thought, you know, he's right, but uh, the odd thing is I never noticed. You know, I just sleep right through it. So anyways, um, I say that because Jessica's been saying to me recently when she has trouble sleeping, she'll say, hey, I, I, I'm, having, I'm having a problem falling asleep. Can you start preaching to me, please? <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, if I have any eff- that effect on any here today, then maybe just give me a call. I offer my services any time throughout the week, but it's just a small fee. Anyways, we're in Acts chapter 9, and... Um, we're going to read the passage. Um, as many of you know, this is the conversion of Saul, who would then be known as the Apostle Paul. And he is the one who wrote so much of the New Testament. So many of the epistles that we read are written by uh, this man, Saul, that we're going to consider today. You know, he wasn't born a Christian, uh, uh, as none of us are, are we? He, uh, at one point in time, came face to face with the Lord Jesus. And he was one who we're going to, we're going to look at was staunchly opposed to the gospel, very opposed to the Lord Jesus, very opposed to his followers. But he came uh, at one point in time in his life, as each of us here have our own testimony, that we've come at some point to, to be convicted of our sin and how we've, we're, we're, we've fallen short. We're not on the right path, and Saul certainly was not on the right path. But he came to that point where he realized he was, he was wrong, and he bent his will to the Lord Jesus and, and then, as I said, we know him as the Apostle Paul and did great works for the Lord. Um, one thing that was mentioned that, that I, I read about and um, talked about a little bit with some of the brethren that I thought was interesting is that we're given, and this is not original to me, but um, it seems to be uh, fairly common, um, we're given three portraits in Acts 8, 9, and 10. Acts chapter 8, we just looked at... Um, this Ethiopian eunuch. We looked at that last week. And uh, then in Acts chapter 9, we're given another portrait, which is uh, Saul, who is, who is we're, we're going to look at here in just a moment. And then Acts chapter 10, we're given this portrait of this man Cornelius. And uh, some have taken the time to draw some contrast between the three of them, these three portraits. The eunuch, a son of Ham, uh, 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 of that that. Uh, land in Africa there, Uh, Saul, a son of Shem, of the uh, Jewish lineage, and Cornelius, a son of Japheth. Uh, The eunuch was a political leader, whereas Saul, a religious leader, and Cornelius, a military leader. The eunuch was heading back home. Saul was leaving home. Cornelius was at home. And, you know, there are other contrasts as well that were brought out, but those were the main ones as we look at these three different portraits, three different men 
from three different walks of life, three different backgrounds, uh, uh, three different lineages, um, many things that we could draw contrast to see how they're different than each other. But one thing in common, at least one thing in common that we know of, and one major thing, and that is that they all had a need for the Savior. And we're given, uh, uh, again, these portraits to see how they came from their different backgrounds to come to a saving knowledge, to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save them personally, and they would turn their life over to him. And uh, so we come to Acts chapter 9, and uh, let's, let's read the chapter. It's rather lengthy, but that's why we're here, right, is to look at the word of God. So let's read Acts 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to hear my name, uh, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized so when he had received food he was strengthened then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ or that this is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him uh, and brought him to the, to the apostles, and he declared to them how he, would, how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. 
And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. Uh, Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that when she became sick, uh, that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. And let's just ask the Lord's help as we consider this. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to open up your word again as an assembly of believers that we might receive instruction from it together, that we might too be edified as the church was in that day and multiplied if it be your will. We commit the day to you. Help us uh, as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So again, we come to this man, Saul, and um, perhaps before we consider the conversion of Saul, it's helpful to think some about who this man was. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of history prior to this regarding Saul, but we do learn a lot about him. Saul was a man born in uh, Tarsus, which is uh, uh, well north of, of Israel, but he was trained in the city of Jerusalem. He was... Uh, a staunch Hebrew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he calls himself, um, a very strict uh, 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 believer in Judaism. He was, of course, a believer in the one true God of Israel. Um, he, he was, as I mentioned, convinced that this Christianity, that this uh, uh, new movement, if you will, was uh, heresy. That it was, uh, uh, here was this man, Jesus, who had claimed to be God. But, but Saul knew that there was only one true God. And not being able to, I suppose, reconcile the two, he believed this to be heresy. That this man, that, that this was some kind of polytheistic religion. That there were, there were multiple gods, but he knew it wasn't so. And so he took, uh, 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 he made it his aim, if you will, to eradicate to obliterate uh, Christianity, to dispose of, if you will, the whole thought of it, those who believed in it, those who followed it. He was, uh, uh, had a, a purpose, was set forth to, um, to basically just rid the world of this Christianity and all those who, who believe in it. 
Um, I read a I read a T-shirt yesterday when we were out that was um, that a man was wearing, and it said, "I have decided to put myself in charge." And uh, I thought, you know, that's kind of like the way that Saul was before he met the Lord. Um, he was, of course, underneath the um, that religious system, and of course, uh, he he took if you will, the authority from them, as we'll read. But he was a man on a mission, and there would no, nobody would stop him, uh, or at least so he thought. Nobody would stop him in his goal to get rid of Christianity, to get rid of those who, who believed in the Lord Jesus. And uh, so basically, we're going to consider, uh, and, I, and I've put an outline to it this way, and if it's helpful to you, good. If not, um, that's fine as well. It's just to put some structure to it. But regarding this man, Saul, really, there's two major divisions in the chapter. We have the conversion of Saul, of course, in verses one to thirty one. And then in verses thirty two to forty three, as I'm sure you noticed, it, it, the, the, the gears change and we're, we're considering Peter and his miracles. So Saul's conversion and up to verse thirty one and then Peter's miracles in thirty two to the end of the chapter. And when it comes to Saul's conversion, you could look at it this way. And the first couple verses, one and two, he has been given a satanic commission, satanic commission. But then there's this heavenly confrontation. We read about this light from heaven. He's on on a mission. He's been commissioned and it's a satanic commission to rid the world of Christianity. Um, But then there's this heavenly confrontation and then there's his miraculous conversion. And uh, and then we read about his high calling that God's given him given him a high calling. He's been chosen for a specific purpose. And then lastly, uh, you notice the radical change. And um, they're all C's, a satanic commission, a heavenly confrontation, a miraculous conversion, a high calling and a radical change. And uh, that really encompasses these verses one to thirty one. So what was this commission that he had been given? Well, we just talked about it a little bit, but let's read exactly what it says. It says Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. If you look back at chapter seven, and this has already been pointed out, you notice that Saul was first introduced here. And the way in which he was introduced was in chapter seven and verse 58, as they were stoning Stephen, as they were taking this man and unjustly putting him to death. You know, sometimes when I read about murder in the Bible, it doesn't really, really hit home. But to imagine that they've taken this man, Stephen, and they're just pummeling him with stones to 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 snuff out his life because they disagree with uh, with what he says. And uh, there was that young man named Saul in verse 58. It says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's Stephen. And witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's first where we're introduced. And we find out later on what Saul was doing there. He was guarding their clothes is what he was doing. He was taking part in the activity by by protecting the garments of those who were who were. Uh, uh, casting stones at Stephen. But then in verse in chapter eight, it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, chapter eight, verse three, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And we learn later on that he did this even unto death to some of these Christians, even unto death. And 
So this was his, his commission. He goes here in chapter 9, and he, he goes to the high priest, it says in verse 1, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The persecution started in Jerusalem. Why? Because the church started in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 2, the day, at the day of Pentecost, that began in Jerusalem. And so that was, in a sense, home base. And so that's where the persecution began as well. But uh, here in chapter 9, Saul's saying, I want to go out, he, out from Jerusalem. Because what happened is in chapter 8, as they persecuted, the more they persecuted and they attempted to imprison, the people scattered. That's what we, read about, that's what we heard about last week, how they just they spread out. And this was God's intention. Even though the persecution, God didn't order it to happen, God used it for his purposes. And so the church spread out. And so uh, Saul wants to go way up in the north. That's, maybe I'll bring up a map here if we have time. But way up in the north to Damascus, this gospel was spreading. And um, so he wants to go and he wants to continue his work to persecute, to, uh, to destroy uh, the disciples, the, any of those who would claim to be followers of this one, Jesus. And that's where he was when, when this took place. It says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. It's interesting to note, and it's been pointed out by many, and again, this is not original, but uh, Saul and those of of Judaism uh, believed that God was contained, if you will, to Jerusalem. That that's where the, the religious systems were. That's where God was. And yet here we read that the Lord meets him outside of Jerusalem. He's just before he gets to Damascus, some 100 or 150 miles north of Jerusalem. He is met by this one. And it's a, it's a, a light which shone around him from heaven. And it says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I have to think, you know, the mercy of God the mercy of the Lord Jesus, that he would make this effort toward this man, Saul. There are many, you know, who, who, who go throughout life and they may be zealous for religious things. They may be zealous for business things. They may be they're zealous for all kinds of different things, zealous for their family, bold like Paul is, uh, like Saul is, but, it, but in other ways. And it is the mercy of God the grace of God, but the mercy of God that brings them to their knees. And, you know, oftentimes we don't see it that way, right? When some kind of trial or tribulation brings us face down in life, if you will, a death in the family, a a financial difficulty and stresses, whatever it might be, we don't view it that way. But this is the grace of God. This is the mercy of God. And that's exactly what it was here. Yes, it was a confrontation, but it was the mercy of God to bring Saul face down on the floor, to bring him to his knees. And that's exactly what happened. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul and all of his holiness and all of his religiosity and all of his knowledge and all of the things that he had obtained couldn't even stand in the presence of the one who is truly holy. As we heard this morning, the righteous one, he is the holy one. And that, that moral purity, that, that perfection, that holiness 
brining shite, uh, shining bright like the sun, we hear later on in Paul's own account, put him to his face, brought him to his knees, just flat on the ground, couldn't stand in the presence of God. And that's no surprise, right? Because we read of that in other portions of Scripture when there's some type of revelation from God that we as feeble uh, uh, fleshly humans can't even stand in his presence. And I, and I dare say that there will be many who will thank God for the trials and tribulations in life and the things that brought them to their knees and, uh, and caused them to where at that point I'm either going to continue to drag my face through the mud or I'm going to look up. And some choose to continue dragging their face through the mud when God brings them to their knees. But some are willing, as Saul, to bend that will to realize they're wrong, they're far from God, and they're willing to, to, to look up and to see what God has for them. And so he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting to note that the persecution which Saul uh, was so involved in was against the disciples of the Lord, wasn't it? But the Lord's rebuke is that you're persecuting me, Saul, you're persecuting me. That should be some bit of an, of an encouragement to us, shouldn't it be? Because when we go out and we attempt to uh, shed light, if you will, like Saul had light here, we attempt to shed light to the unbelieving world to give them some of the Lord Jesus. Uh, that rejection that we so often face, it's really not a rejection of us, though it is, but it's not. It's a rejection of the Lord Jesus himself, isn't it? And so he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I was thinking as well, you know, while it's an, an encouragement, it's also a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because when we are here uh, amidst the Lord's people, and there are many in this body here, and we uh, take our efforts to gouge at each other, to gossip about each other, to, to break each other down, we realize that, well, that's not against just that person, but that's against the Lord himself. The, 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 the pain inflicted upon the body here on earth is felt by the head in heaven, isn't it? And that's exactly what was communicated here. But I'm overwhelmed by the mercy of God that he would, he would come to this man, Saul, a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. And it's a miracle, isn't it? But really, that's what he's done for each of us here, right? If, if you've come to, to a saving faith, to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that your eyes have been opened, that you're, you're far from God and that you need him, it's the mercy of God that he's taken, that he's made that, that effort toward you to, to, to see that you come to him. And again, there are many who we read about, like Saul, kicking against the goads. They, they, they fight against it. And God attempts and God attempts to, to turn them, to bend that will. But they refuse. And there are many who have given, been given some light, but refuse. Unlike Saul, who we'll see bent his will to God. And it really should break our hearts, right, that there are so many. It should give us a zeal in and of ourselves to go out to proclaim the gospel because there are so many who, who believe. And we read about Saul's account. He was, he was fully persuaded that he should do many things contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were his own words. But he was, he was totally wrong. 
He was on the wrong path, the wrong mission. He was on the wrong side, if you will. And there are so many out there like that, aren't there? They've got their zeal for whatever it might be. And we have this message here. Uh, uh, Second Corinthians tells us we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us that the world would be reconciled to him. And we have this message, and there are so many full of zeal for whatever it might be. Maybe it's their own religion, whatever it might be. But, but, but they're wrong. Their focus is wrong. They're on the wrong path. And, and, and you'll see here with Saul that this is not just a tweak in his mission. This is not just a tweak, a, a slight change in Saul's direction. It is a total new life for Saul. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that would be true of Saul. And it's true of anyone who's truly come to the Lord Jesus. That we've put away all of that, all of that old stuff. This is not just a tweak in your life. It's not just the Lord Jesus that you've added to your, to your pants pocket. That, well, I believe, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've got some not... No, if your life hasn't been changed, if you're not a new creation, then you haven't come to know the Lord Jesus. You know, it's a radical change. And we see it in Saul. And it's not just Saul. We see it in many others throughout history. And we see it in, in many others, even in our own congregation. Many who come to preach to us, we see the radical change that's happened, that's taken place. We're a new creation this is not just a minor, a minor change of direction. This is not just a slight focus of our vision, but we're a new creation. We've got a new, we're going we're to look just briefly at what Saul had that was new to him, a new creation in Christ. And, and really it should motivate us to, to, to give the gospel, to attempt to give. And we can't force people to come. We can't force them to. The Lord Jesus brought Saul to his knees, but Saul had to bend the will and that he did. And, and, and even today, the Lord's pleading through us to the world to be reconciled to him. We can't force them to come, but we can surely uh, make our attempts to, to show them uh, uh, what the Lord Jesus has done for us and who he is in his word. And so he says, who are you, Lord, in verse five? And the Lord says to him, I am Jesus. There are many things that the Lord Jesus could have said at that time, right? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the life. I am, and he could have gone on and on and on. I mean, what a loaded question, huh? In fact, we'll look here at two questions that you could really categorize so much of the New Testament into these two questions. Who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do? The person of Christ and the practice of the believer. Who are you, Lord? We come week after week to delve into, to, to attempt to explore the depths of who he is. And, 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 and we love it because we've received him as Saul did, as Jesus, but there's so much more to him. But anyways, the response from the Lord Jesus is, I am Jesus. He could have gone much further than that. I dare say he could have kept Saul on his face for hours or weeks or months explaining to him who he is. But he just says simply, I am Jesus. And you know, I was thinking some of the uh, some of the fear in going out to the dying world is that, you know, we don't know enough. 
well, it's, it's so hard to refute them. There's so many different people with different beliefs, and, and we don't, I don't have all the answers, and I don't know so much about him that I can defend every point and so forth. But when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to, to Saul, it was just those words, I am Jesus, just that. I mean, we're just introducing them to a person, right? He is a person, the Lord Jesus. We don't necessarily need to go into, not that there's never a place to go deeper into the word of God and to explain to them who he really is. But when we go out, when we testify, when we attempt to open the eyes of some around us, it's that simple. He is Jesus. He's the son of God. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. He saved me. It can be that simple. And so he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Again, those two great questions of Saul. And you would almost see how Saul, throughout his epistles, his many writings, is attempting to answer these two questions. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? To give us some knowledge of who he is. And then the practice of the believer. What am I to be doing uh, uh, with this knowledge of who he is? Interesting to see the bold one. This one who was so brash and so uh, 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 focused and so intimidating and so feared to be there on his face, trembling, trembling before the Lord Jesus, trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Actually, this chapter doesn't tell us. In fact, we don't really read. I don't think where exactly in this process he was converted, where he came from death unto life. But perhaps it was at this very point that he bent his will to the Lord Jesus. A new master, if you will, no longer under the religious system of the Jews, no longer under Judaism and, and, and all, that, uh, all that was there and the, the way they had uh, uh, distorted it to, to oppose Christianity, but a new master. And perhaps it was at this very point that he was uh, uh, changed, that he had gone from death into life. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I was thinking, you know, there is a time for us as believers to be on our face, if you will, before the Lord. There is a time to be on our knees, to to worship him, to think about him, to to adore him, to be built up, if you will, in our souls, to be reaffirmed in our faith. There is a time for that. But then there's a time to arise and go. And that's what the Lord says to him. Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Isn't it like that? I mean, sometimes the gospel can pre- be presented. And, 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 and when so- one person comes to the Lord, it's such a wonderful thing. Their eyes have been opened. But there's a whole mass of other people there. And they're all standing and listening. And they hear this voice. They hear something being said, but they don't see a thing. They don't see a thing. It's as if... They're blinded, but that's exactly what it is, isn't it? That the God of this world has blinded their minds, that they can't see. And, and, and that's, in a sense, pictured here, that these men stood with him and they hear. They, there's this whole scene going on, but there's a blindness to it, isn't there? Because they hear a voice, but they don't see a thing. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. It's almost interesting here. We have the physically blind leading now, or I'm sorry, the spiritually blind, leading the physically blind. There, there, there's two blind people here. Those who were blind in the sense they couldn't see the Lord. 
the, Saul saw him. He received him. We know that his will was, was bent and that he was converted because of just the chapter to follow and, of course, all the other things we've talked about and all of his work for the Lord. But we have here uh, 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 the blind, leading Saul the blind. He was on his way into Damascus with, if you will, like laser-like vision to find those Christians, to bring them bound, to persecute them, to obliterate the, the, the Christianity from the earth, to exterminate, to get rid of them all. And, and, and yet here he is in verse 8, helpless, blind, shuffling his feet, if you will, into Damascus. He was going to come in there with power, with the authority of the chief, of, of the chief priest. He was going to come in to, to destroy those who, who would hold to the faith. But now... After a vision, after a confrontation, a heavenly confrontation with the Son of God, with Jesus himself, he comes shuffling his feet, blind, being led by the hand. Oh, the humbling process. And isn't it for each of us? When we come, when one comes to the place to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, it's a very humbling process. Isn't it? If you're not humbled to know of your standing before God, then, then you really can't be saved. If you're not humbled to know that you have no standing, that you have no place before God in and of yourself, then, then you really can't be saved. And Saul humbled, no doubt. And then there was this time of three days where he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And you could imagine that those three days were, well, Paul took them seriously, obviously, because he was fasting. And then later we read that he's praying. But you, 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 you could imagine that that was a time of real soul searching and real uh, just thinking about who the Lord is, what he did, that he came and he died. And I'm sure Saul witnessed that and, and all the events that took place in this time of, of blocking out the Lord, if you will, closed his eyes to everyone around him, closed his eyes to all of the things going on around him and said, now you're just going to sit for three days and you're going to think and you're going to meditate and you're going to uh, uh, think on me. And we're going to hurry through some of the rest of this, but it says that there was this man, Ananias, and the Lord used him. Imagine that. The Lord used this man, Ananias. We're not told that he was a great apostle. We're not told that he was, you, you know, you might think, would he use Peter or would he use John or who would he use to come to Saul and to, and to give him his sight back and to give him the Holy Spirit? Well, he used this man, Ananias. And you can't help uh, 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 you can't really condemn Ananias for the question that he asked the Lord. You know, uh, basically, are you sure, Lord, that you want me to go and meet with this man? I mean, haven't you heard of what he's done? I sure have. We've all heard about what he's done and why he's here in Damascus. But the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, verse 15, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I will show, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And that one verse there really um, stands out to me because, you know, we do very little suffering here, don't we? Very little suffering for the Lord Jesus. Not all of us, but most of us, and I include myself, very little suffering. It's not that we need to go out and and give ourselves lashes or, you know, to beat on each other and try to try to try to gain some kind of righteousness by that. It's not that we even need to go out and try to stir people up to be angry with us. But there is a suffering. If you're going to serve the risen Savior, there is a suffering that takes place because you've got to sacrifice 
things in life. You've got to sacrifice some of your free time, if you will, which is really the Lord's time. You've got to sacrifice some of your pleasures, some of the things that entertain you. And there is, in a sense, a very real sense, maybe even more with this type of suffering that I'm speaking of than the physical suffering that some other believers face elsewhere. But that we have to put aside all of the wonderful things here, if you want to call them that, in the United States of America and all the, 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 the pleasures that we have, all of, the, all of the things that are there. But if you're going to serve the Savior, there's going to be some suffering involved because you've got to, if you're going to sacrifice, right, those two almost go uh, 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 right alongside each other. If you're going to sacrifice what you have to do to serve the Lord, that's some bit of suffering, isn't it? Because you've got to put aside some of those things that, um, that so easily distract us. And so he uh, lays his hand on him and says, Brother Saul, imagine that. The great antagonist, the great persecutor, the great one who was feared, now a brother, a brother in Christ. Brother Saul, in verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. I just want to point out a couple things as we're running short on time. Um, There were several things that I came across that I was just um, thrilled to see. And I don't see them here in my notes. But nonetheless, Saul has a new master. We see him obeying the voice of the Lord. Okay, You want to talk about a new creation in Christ Jesus, which is what you are if you've been saved. He had a new master. He had a new spirit. He was given the Holy Spirit. He had... Uh, a new identity. He was baptized immediately. A new identity, identifying with Christ. He had a new fellowship in verse 19. Tells us that he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He had these new, these new friends. They were the family of God, a new fellowship. He had a new message in verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ. He had a new vision. He went out to proclaim the gospel, to defend the faith. He had a new, a new vision. He had a new purpose in life. And it's interesting to see, too, in verse 22, that Saul increased all the more in strength. Here he was going to begin facing his own persecution for the, ones from, from, uh, for the one who he persecuted before. He was going to begin to fa- face his own persecution two times in this chapter before he even gets out of chapter 9. His life is threatened of him because he's changed sides, if you will. He's been converted. And, and he, he takes out the message with boldness, fearlessly. He has a new master and a new vision. And there is this growth process. It says that he was increasing all the more. You know, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be spiritual growth, shouldn't there? We should be able to look at our lives and see where we were when we were rescued by the Lord Jesus and where he's brought us to. And there should be spiritual growth. There should be an increase in our knowledge of him and in our relationship with him and in our service for him. There should be an increase. And certainly we have our low times. We have our mountaintops, if you will, and we have our low times. But, but all in all, there should be an, an increase, a, a spiritual growth. And Saul, uh, 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 all of these new things to him because he was a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to skip some of the rest again. His life is threatened in 23 to 25, and then he, uh, he exits Damascus, if you will, in a large basket off the wall. He was going to come back with his, with his prizes, with his rewards, with those Christians bound, but here he is being let out of the city in a basket. But I would, I would dare to say that he had so much more joy, so much more fulfillment in the way that he's exiting this city than had he uh, been still on his path to persecute the church. And there, there's some fear of him as he goes back to Jerusalem in verse 26 and so forth. And uh, I just want to notate on verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. You know, that, that opposition, I mean, you could imagine, right, if you were part of the church at that time, that is a, a scary thing to know of a man like Saul that's on the lookout for you. He's on his way to get you. But now that there's this conversion, there's peace in the churches and there's edification. And isn't that true? When there's spiritual growth, I mean, when there's someone converts to the Lord, it has exponential effects, right? Their family is all of a sudden, they can be totally changed. Oh my, what's happened to this person? And the, the body of Christ, when there's that spiritual growth, when there's that conversion, it has those far-reaching effects all the way to Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It says they were edified and they were multiplied. There was spiritual growth, if you will, edification, that they were being built up. And there was, there was growth in numbers as well. They were being multiplied. People were being added to the church. It's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, we realize when there's spiritual growth, it has far-reaching effects. When there's spiritual defeat, when, 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 when someone falls, particularly someone who has um, a, a well-known ministry or whatever it might be, but when there's spiritual defeat, that also has far-reaching effects. And it's a, a warning. Then there are these two miracles at the end of the chapter, and we won't spend a lot of time on them, but um, there is uh, uh, some lessons to be learned. Peter went out looking, and he found this man, Aeneas, and he gives him back his, his life, if you will. He, 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 the paralytic is now raised up, and he's got full strength. Peter went out. And then, in the second miracle, someone's brought to Peter. He didn't go out this time, but someone's brought to him. And it's interesting, right, that when we take those steps of faith, if you've never done it, you may not know, but when you take those steps of faith to go out for the Lord Jesus, to go beyond your comfort zone, to make an effort for the one who saved you, for the one who, who, who maintains you and who has secured your salvation, when you take those steps of faith, the Lord often grants that blessing back to you, doesn't he? We go out in faith. Sometimes I've noticed I make those efforts, and as uncomfortable as they are, especially at first, to give the gospel, to be a witness, and then I see the Lord bringing people to me and opening doors for me. And, uh, and, and I, I believe that was the same here for Peter. But the bottom line is that there were two miracles done here, and I have some thoughts about the faith healers of our days today, because it's totally different than what the apostles did. One thing to keep in mind, uh, as I thought about them, is that a lot of times the things you hear them say are similar to things that the Lord Jesus said. And I'm talking about the faith healers. They, they heal people today. The major difference is, of course, that the apostles actually healed people. These people don't heal anybody. But the, the, the point is that the Lord Jesus did not have the gift of healing. The Lord Jesus was God himself. So be careful when you hear people using terminology and saying things that the Lord Jesus said, but that you never hear the apostles say. 
because the apostles had the gift of healing. So if you're claiming to have the gift of healing, let's see it like the apostles did it. And a lot of times the faith healers today, they use the person's faith and you've got to have faith. And if you have faith and, well, you didn't have enough faith, I'm sorry about that. Well, guess what? That's not the way the apostles did it. It wasn't a faith-based miracle. It was a, a total healing. And there's only one account where faith is even mentioned in the apostles' healing. And uh, otherwise, every other time, it's a total and complete healing. Nothing to do with the person's faith at all. Um, but anyways, these two miracles are done. And it says that all the surrounding areas, many people turned to the Lord. There was great growth. There was increase. There was a purpose in this. And, you know, each of us have had a miracle done in our life, haven't we? We've been rescued. We've been saved. We've been called out. We're a new creation like the Apostle Paul. Saul, who is now now the Apostle Paul. And it ought to have that type of effect, right? Who, who, I mean, what type of fruit is there? All of these people turning to the Lord because of these miracles. What about the miracle in your life? Any fruit? Anyone ever turning to the Lord? Anybody ever challenged by you? Does anybody even know you're a Christian? And so I offer that as a challenge. We've had amazing miracles done. We've been given our strength back. We've been given our legs back. We've been taken, like, like Tabitha, out of death, back into life. And, uh, and there ought to be some evidence of that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for this one, Saul, who, and the highlights you've given of his conversion. We're so grateful for the way that you had mercy upon him. And that you would show, show yourself to him. We thank you for the miracle of salvation and the miracle that each of us who know the Lord Jesus today in the same way have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. We give you thanks. We thank you for the lessons we can learn. Help us to apply your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.